All right, I'm David Brothers, and I'm here with Spike Trotman, creator of Templar AZ, uh, Portcraft, and several other works. Spike, I wanted to start with just a really simple, basic question, which is, how did you come to reading comic books? Like, what was your introduction to the medium? I've read comic books since I was a child. I don't know if single digits is the word, but um, like everybody my age, back before, you know, newspapers were in their long-term contraction period, Yeah, I read uh, newspaper comics like everybody else, and I am of the opinion I grew up in the time period that was kind of like the last hurrah of the newspaper comic. That was when there was Calvin and Hobbes and The Far Side, stuff like that. Oh, yeah. You know, you could, you actually looked forward to the comic page. <laughs> and um, my first imitations of art were uh, Far Side drawings because I thought, oh, wow, here's the coolest thing ever. Here's a guy, you know, no insult to Gary Larson. I love him. I have many of his collections. <laughs> here's a guy who wasn't really that good. But mm-hmm. look at him. He had, a, he had a comic in the newspaper. And not only did he have a comic in the newspaper, it was really popular. And plus, he had figured out a problem I had always had. Like, I could never draw eyes. But check this guy out. He just, <laughs> just drew a line. And, like, everybody was kind of shaped like a like the Liberty Bell. And, like, all the women looked exactly the same. All the men looked exactly the same. And, and if you wanted to draw, haircuts. Yeah, if you wanted to draw a cow, you just plunk a cow head on the exact same body you always drew. I thought this guy, <laughs> he nailed it. He had figured it out. And I was like, well, if he could do it, cool. And um, I was sneaking my brother's comic books. Uh, back then, he was reading uh, Power Pack and the Transformers comics. And mm-hmm. that kind of evolved into my interest in Excalibur, which was a very narrow interest. Because by the time I was developing it, I was maybe, I don't know, like 15, 16. And uh, <laughs> I am part of a very real but not often recognized sort of contingent of teenage female comic book readers from that period <laughs> that read the comic just for Nightcrawler and nobody else. And we would wow. go into the shop and we'd grab the, the, the issue of Excalibur for that month and we'd flip through it. And if we liked how Nightcrawler was drawn that month, we'd buy it. And if he wasn't in that <laughs> issue or we didn't like who was drawing him, we would not buy it because I had long just given up on trying to follow the storyline i just liked nightcrawler it was one of those things where i was too young to realize why and (laughs) i dropped completely off the comics radar because marvel pulled that fucking age of apocalypse crap and it got to the point where you'd go in you'd buy the comic and they'd be talking about all this stuff you're like i don't remember any of this and there'd be all the editorial notes that just said oh you have to buy these other three titles to understand the storyline and i'm all like I'm 15. I have an allowance. <laughs> I can't be doing this. And just, bye. And I kind of fell out of comics for years after that. And I only got back into it my freshman year of college. I had a friend, and she had a pull box at the local shop. And when we were getting ready to go see a movie or do something, uh, one day she said, I, I want to just go get my pull box. I'm so sorry. I know you don't read comics. I know it's really nerdy. But she was one of those comic readers who was really into death, like game and death, not like the yeah, concept yeah. of death, game and death. And she really wanted to go pick up the latest death comic. And while she was waiting for her pull, pull box, I looked around the comic shop and I saw a copy of Fun with Milk and Cheese on the on the shelf. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, well, that's not very clever. Oh, let me guess. Their, their dairy products gone bad, so they're 
their little nasty carton of milk and little nasty wedge of cheese, and they're very mean to everybody. And I picked it up, and Evan Dorkin talks no end of trash about milk and cheese. He talks about <laughs> how they are basically one joke, and but I don't care because it's milk and cheese joke. to this day is what got me back into comics when I was like 18 or 19. I just started laughing like a hyena right there in the shop, and I had to buy it. And from then on, I went to the comic shop on my own, and I realized, oh, wait, even though superhero comics had kind of catastrophically let me down, <laughs> there's this whole alternative comics thing over here. And this whole time I'd been drawing, and I've been drawing a lot, and I knew I wanted to make comics in some sort of like indistinct way. I have never been that person that wanted to pencil Spider-Man, you know, but... Mm-hmm. I, I liked comics and I liked making them and I made them of my own accord and I made mini comics and I submitted them to Fact Sheet 5 and I sold them in my high school and I, I didn't know that, you know, I had no idea how I was going to get it out there, how I was going to get people reading it, but I knew I, you know, I, I would do my best and I'd keep making them. But the fact that alternative comics existed, and of course back then we're talking, you know, uh, early 2000s, late 1990s, there were still floppy alternative comics in the shops. So I was picking up floppy alternatives and I was sort of fantasizing about the day that I could, you know, be on the shelf and, oh, wouldn't that be amazing? And so, yeah, uh, fast forward. (laughs) Here I am now. and Yeah. So after you quit comics, uh, excuse me, was it public knowledge that you used to be a reader or did you just kind of not talk about it so people assumed you weren't into it anymore? I just didn't talk about it. It wasn't one of those things where I made this big deal about how Marvel betrayed me. It's, you know, it was was a very sort of, I just lost interest. It's just one of those things where it was never, I'm too old for that. It was never, I'm a grown up now or gross, comics are gross, I hate comics. Uh, it was just like, yeah, I was, I read them until they pulled that age of apocalypse shit. And, you know, I was like, even as a child, I know when I'm being hoodwinked. I know when someone's like wringing me out like a towel for my last dime. And I wouldn't have put it this way at the time, but I was offended by that. I was, I was just very, it's like, I want to read Excalibur, you know, I Mm -hmm. see what you're doing and I don't appreciate it. That's amazing. So, how did you uh, how did you transition into creating comics? Oh, I've been like making... you'd always been drawing. So, how did what like what was that first thing that made you put your work out there publicly? Oh, uh, the first thing I ever put out publicly, I would say, is um, many comics I put out in high school. Uh, I had a comic that I'm actually trying to retool and remake it to a web comic right now. Uh, who knows when I'll finally get around to finishing that up but the first comic i put out for public consumption was called wreckers and it was about two aliens who ran a planet wrecking company as in you know just i i i I have to say right here i had not read hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy at this point so the idea of an entire planet being demolished i actually came up with that on my own (laughs) thank you very much And um, it was just one of those deals where these guys would show up and they would vacuum up your atmosphere and they would rip apart your uh, strata or, you know, they'd take your molten iron core and they'd sell that to the highest bidder and the whole planet would be gone. And uh, they had a giant robotic cat and they had a spaceship and they looked kind of like satyrs with kangaroo tails and I was very, very proud of them and it looked like absolute garbage. But I still (laughs) like the concept and I'm going to reboot it one day. Just watch. 
Uh, and how long from that did you go to uh, creating Templar? Oh, God. Okay, I'm going to take you into the way back now, the long, long ago. Back when um, Web Comics Nation was kind of like brand spanking new and sparkling. And people were still kind of like trying to figure out the whole how do I make the internet give me money thing. Mm-hmm. God, this makes me feel so old. Okay, um, there was still sort of this mindset that no matter what you did, you could not get the internet to make you money no matter what. Everyone was kind of like fresh and raw and hurting from the dot-com bubble burst. So no one really believed there was any money online. And Webcomics Nation was, I kind of consider it a noble experiment. Like, they had a subscription model for a lot of their websites. And one of their websites was Girlomatic. And I had two comics on Girlomatic. One was Sparkneedle, which was super experimental, super, you know, baby's first abstract, borderline abstractionist comic, which I still like, by the way, and I never finished. And Lucas and Odessa, which was a slice of life, teen girl, befriends, disgusting drifter comic, which I also never finished. And those two comics did not get finished for an incredibly mercenary reason. And I will cop to it completely that they weren't making the money that Templar made. Templar, mm-hmm. when I launched it, I can't tell you exactly the year. I want to say 2006 or 2005. When I launched it, it was immediately more popular than both those comics, primarily because it was free to read, because Girlomatic was subscription. And it was, uh, it got, you know, a decent bunch of people, like, asking for updates, asking for new pages, telling me they really liked my stuff. And when I was getting that kind of feedback, it's, it's kind of hard to compete with, you know, a site that you had to pay to see and, you know, there was limited feedback and the payout was not anything to write home about. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, I made a choice to go with the popular comic that wasn't paying me anything to, I, I, I went with that comic over the other comics that were on the pay site, but the pay from the pay site, you know, that wouldn't get me a pizza. So... Uh. Yeah, at the end of the day, uh, Templar went for maybe two years, and at the two-year mark, people start asking, so when are you going to make a book? And uh, I was like, oh, I, I guess I should try and try and do that. That sounds like a good idea. And of course, this was pre-Kickstarter, pre-Patreon, pre-all of this stuff, still you know, firmly ensconced in the, the internet cannot make you money no matter what years, and I did it super old school style. I made a thermometer graphic put that at the top of my page and put you know the goal at one end and zero at the other and i said i would like to print a templar book i have called the printer and they told me i need this much money and if you guys give me this money and i if you pre-order the the uh the book without you know it actually existing i will definitely send you a copy when it's done and uh, gosh i hope this works and gosh i hope you guys want a templar book and I got like $6,000 in two weeks, and I thought I was queen of the world. <laughs> I thought, you know, I was the most amazing thing ever, and I printed the book, and it's just been kind of going on from there. Wow. <laughs> that, I mean, that is the thermometer thing especially feels like memory lane to me. I know. It's older than old school. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about asking for money, for lack of a better phrase. Absolutely. Did you have to, uh, like, gear yourself up to say, like, hey, you know, I have this plan – I believe it will work, but I need some help. Or yeah. were you just all about it immediately? Um, 
I kind of waffled for a while because at that time, you know, I had a general idea of what my page views were like, but I didn't know if they were the kind of page views that would pay enough for a print run. Because the print run was like, you know, 45000 I mean, 4500 maybe $5,000. And I was like, is, I like Templar, and Templar is good, and people tell me Templar is good, but is it $5,000 good? Because that seemed like an astronomical amount of money to me at the time. Like, I could yeah. never picture getting $5,000, I reiterate, from the internet. <laughs> you know, that was back in the day when the only way to make money was ad banners. And that was it. It's like, if you were lucky, you made kind of minimum wage ad banner money. Like Was Project Wonderful around back then? Oh, not back then, no. Okay. No, this is older than Project Wonderful. Or at least I wasn't on Project Wonderful at the time. But yeah. it's it was just... I I was afraid it wouldn't work, but it was one of those things where I've always been a very nothing ventured, nothing gained kind of person. Mm-hmm. Where I'm just going to try it just to see. It's like, I wonder if this person will be in my anthology. Well, if I don't write him, I'll never know, so I might as well write him. Gee, I wonder if I could get this person to give me a back of the book blurb. Well, I can write him and find out. You know, that's kind of always been my attitude. He who hesitates is lost, I guess. Yeah, it seems like it's working. Uh, you've got, <laughs> like, so far, you've got Iron Circus Comics, which is kind of your... Yeah. Publi- is it boutique publishing? Just publishing? I'm not sure if there's a specific um, term a for publish- it. I, it's a publisher right now. I don't know how much I want to say, honestly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, there's a lot of projects in the pipe right now. Um, Sleep of Reason, which was my horror anthology that got kickstarted last year, uh, is at the printers right now. They have the corrected proofs, so we're expecting the book sometime end of next week, beginning of week after next. Mm-hmm. Uh, Smut Peddler, which was way more popular than I ever thought it would be, and completely, it's the reason I'm such a Kickstarter fan is that that Smut Peddler Kickstarter endowed my business with a life-changing amount of money. And there is no hyperbole in that statement. And when I was kind of like organizing Smut Peddler, and when I launched the Kickstarter, I had three figures in my (laughs) business account. There was like a few hundred dollars left in my business account because I'd paid out the page rates and everything. And I was not stone broke, but I was not far off. Mm -hmm. And when... Kickstarter kind of has this this format where it's like, without you, this project doesn't happen. That was very literal in the case of the first Smut Peddler. And I put it up for 20 and, you know, in the dark of night with the curtains pulled, sitting in a closet by myself, <laughs> I would admit that maybe, maybe I'll make 40 Wouldn't mm-hmm. it be great if I made 40 And then just like, <laughs> when when that happened, I took all the money. Gave everyone their their page rate bonuses and just immediately plowed it all back into the business. And with any luck, all of the money I've plowed back into the business is going to come to fruition this year. Like, I've been paying a page rate for Porecraft 2. Uh, I paid for the script for Porecraft 2 for Ryan Estrada. It's it's about travel. Porecraft mm-hmm. 2 would be about... It'll, the, the formal title is Porecraft 2, Wish You Were Here. And... I don't know what you know about Ryan Estrada, but there is no more appropriate person to write a book on how to travel when you have no money than Ryan Estrada. (laughs) So, you know, paid him well for his services. And Diana Knock will be reappearing as the artist. And unlike Porecraft 1, 
Warcraft 2, when it hits Kickstarter, will still need the money to be printed, but it will be about 95% finished. What will be left to do will be cameo appearance, appearances, like the slots are left blank on the page, and uh, cover appearances, just like with Warcraft 1. That's awesome. Yeah, so all that money's got into Warcraft 2 and other stuff. That what, made you, uh, <laughs> what made you interested in publishing other uh, cartoonists? Oh, let's see. I'm going to choose my words very carefully here because there's a bunch of stuff I don't feel like giving away. Um, yeah. If you go to ironcircus.com, you will see that the tagline for Iron Circus underneath the name of the company is strange and amazing. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine once said that indie comics is the only sort of industry where if you don't like it, make your own is a valid statement. Like mm-hmm. movies, all that other stuff, like especially uh, creative mediums that require a lot of effort from a lot of different specialties to make something watchable, readable, bearable, enjoyable. <laughs> you know, that, that has a, a bar of entry that's set much higher than comics. But with comics, Smut Peddler exists because there are thousands of women out there who really like comic book porno who are being completely ignored. Mm-hmm. Porecraft exists because there are thousands of people out there who need that kind of advice <laughs> and aren't getting it. And Strange and Amazing is the tagline of Iron Circus because what I want to publish are the kind of comics I really want to exist. Sleep of Reason is going to be hitting the streets soon, and that is because I miss Taboo. That is the only <laughs> Sleep of Reason exists. There's just a lot of comics that aren't being made, in my opinion, or if they aren't being made, they aren't if they are being made, rather, they aren't being sort of collected and given the kind of attention I think they they deserve. And I know from personal experience there are a lot of cartoonists out there who have the creative chops and they have the audience and they're just sort of idling on the starting line, but they don't have, let's call it business savvy. They, they kind of don't know the motions to go through to do self-promotion and mm. order fulfillment and all sorts of things that kind of are the nuts and bolts parts of being an independent artist. And they are just a lot more comfortable with a trellis for their creative vine to cling to. And I kind of picture Iron Circus as being a publishing company along the lines of going around looking for underrepresented, non-represented, completely ignored, interesting ideas and creators and sort of going, hey, come here for a second. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's hard. Finding a fulfillment center is hard. Mm, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Pre-press is hard. Let me talk to you about that. You know, just being kind of that person. And primarily, first and foremost, cutting a fair deal. I am appalled that in this day and age, there are people who actually get away with not paying artists. And I'm not talking about, like, some slimy dude on a message board somewhere. Prominent people. Award-nominated people not paying their artists. And I am... I, I, I can't get over that that's okay with so many people. Because 
we live in a world where it's like you can turn that power structure completely upside down with artists on top and everyone else on the bottom and it's just like don't let people convince you they're doing you a favor by employing you that's a really good way to put it yeah it's just yeah anyway i i you want a tangent i got tangents <laughs> tangents to spare I like that, uh, like, I feel like Iron Circus kind of breaks a lot of rules. Like, you were saying that you, uh, like, you seek out underrepresented, non-represented people and put their work out. Uh, like, Smut Peddler is a woman-friendly, sex-positive anthology. Oh, yeah. And, like, the, I guess the, I don't want to say general consensus, because it's not true. But there are people in comics who will always say, like, hey, anthologies don't work, blah, 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 blah. But yeah. then there are so many successful anthologies. Yeah, I love that. I love that you can go on Kickstarter and it seems like if you go to the comic section, there's always an anthology project running. I love that because anthologies are kind of like you people grab it and they go, oh, artists A, B, and C are in here. I know them and love them. I'll take it. And then they take it home and they read it and maybe they'll, yeah, they bought it for those big names, but maybe they'll become fans of like the other people who are in there too and that's it's like such a great way to get noticed as sort of like an accompaniment to superstar artists. Yeah, it's Super- almost like a comics buffet in exactly. a way. Exactly. And it's like I know there are people who get smut peddler and that are gonna get sleep of reason and they, they look at it and they go, Well, I, I bought this for my favorite artist, but who's this person back here? And they're gonna flip to the back and they're going to read the person's bio and go to their website and maybe become a new fan. That's why anthologies are so useful, especially in the small press when you know, your selling point as an artist is going to be your individual style or your method of storytelling. It's like you can't rely on how well you draw Wolverine at <laughs> work. You have to actually kind of develop a fan base that's unique to you. And any opportunity to get your work in front of a future potential fan is so valuable. And that's what anthologies are. And a lot of what you've been uh, talking about just now is. It's about knowing not just your art, but also the business and like the physical logistics aspects of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's doable, but I'm not gonna you know BS you. It took me like five to ten years to get it completely down. You know, like yeah. figure out Smut Peddler was very much like the first Smut Peddler. It was very much a uh, trial by fire, I guess mm-hmm. you could say, because I hadn't been working on that kind of volume since before that you know like i had templar books but smut peddler was you know four thousand books hitting me all at once and half of them had to go out that week and i had to buy infrastructure to get them all out the door you know what's indicia i don't know but i'm about to find out (laughs) you know what's a dymo printer i don't know but i better learn you know just i had to get all that in place I had to buy warehouse space to store the books because I am done living with books. Yeah. <laughs> I spent <laughs> 10 years with books in my living room, books in front on top of my computer, books in the bedroom, everywhere. I'm done living with books. They live at the warehouse now. But, you know, that's now in place. And that's one of those things the Smut Peddler Kickstarter bought me. It bought me sort of the, the foundation on which to build other projects. And that's, you know, when I say life-changing amounts of money, that's kind of what it paid for. Yeah. Did you have someone, uh, like, could you consult anyone to show you the ropes? Or were you just, like, straight trial and error? Oh, God. Uh, well, I Both. learned enough 
to keep from catastrophically destroying everything when I was doing Templar because Templar kind of paid me, these days I call it secretary money. So think about mm-hmm. the kind of money a secretary makes. The best years of Templar were paying me secretary money. And so uh, I was kind of learning in a kiddie pool. I was learning, okay, so this is how you pack a book so it won't show up torn in two. Thanks, post office. This is how you do this. This is how you do that. You know, I got the basics down. And then it was final exam time with Smut Peddler. And, you know, by then, pre-press had pretty much more or less been figured out. Uh, how the post office works, more or less figured out. Media Mail figured that out, you know. It's just Smut Peddler was just very overwhelming initially. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, you f- you give a lot of uh, advice, I guess. Like you talked about the best ways to go about Kickstarter. Uh, Poorcraft oh, was all about you know kind of living and keeping track of your money and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm a busybody. I like telling people how to live their lives. <laughs> but it seems like you're coming from a good place with it, which is <laughs> not necessarily you know like I've made a mistake. Don't make these mistakes, but I yeah. figured out something that can help you like start from the starting line instead of eight places back. Yeah, yeah, I just, there's, <laughs> I just know that Porecraft, I mean, I advertised it as the book I wish someone had handed me when I turned 18. Mm-hmm. My life would have been a lot easier in points if I had <laughs> known what to ask a roommate before moving in with them, you know, things like that. Uh, of course, there's a lot of advice in there that didn't exist when I was 18, like uh, WalkScore, that website that is perfect and amazing and everybody should plug their address into before mm-hmm. moving but uh, it's just sort of there's always going to be room for good advice out there. And I think especially um, I recently did a comic called This Is Everything I Know. It was supposed to be a 24-hour comic. It is a failure of a 24-hour comic. It took me a few days. Mm-hmm. But all it was was just, okay, so I make a living in comics and this is everything I know about making a living in comics. And I feel as if like Internet is such a really good – the Internet's a really good medium for that kind of advice because advice about making comics in book format maybe is like, you know, how long is that going to take to make? Like a year and then maybe a month to publish, then you get it out there and then that book's going to be on the market for a few more years. And by the time maybe someone picks up that book in two or three years, that information's going to be stale. I mean, when I was coming up, the money, like I said, was in banner ads. You had to banner up, banner ad up your site, and you had to be on the right ad networks, and you had to organize your ad cascade just so, and <laughs> then you can make a living. And nowadays, people are like, ad banners? Well, I guess you can make a living off ad banners as long as your page views are up in the six figures. But the rest of us got to work, you know? Yeah. It's just the, the, the speed at which things change is part of the reason I like like the whole sort of giving advice in a webcomic format and that's what I think it's especially well suited for this is everything I know. Poorcraft has generally more timeless stuff so it's a lot more comfortable putting that in a book like buy a cast iron skillet is never not going to be good advice. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you, t- you mentioned that when you were a kid that you had a, uh, a group of friends who were really into Nightcrawler and that <laughs> That sort of thing. Yeah. What's your comics community been like growing up and like on into today? Um, honestly, I didn't really have a community growing up. I was reading comics pretty much by myself. But 
to be fair, I was a fairly introverted kid. I had maybe mm-hmm. like two friends. And uh, when I say friends, I'm like people I'd have over to my house and I'd go over to their house. You know, it's not like people I talk to, people I genuinely consider friends. So comics was a very solitary thing. And where I grow up, my husband corrects me because he's seen the house I grew up in. I talk about how I grew up in the suburbs and he just gives me this sad look and he goes, no, baby, you grew up in the woods. (laughs) And you, it's like everybody kind of, where I grew up, I grew up in the Maryland suburbs and everybody kind of had maybe two or three acres to themselves and you did not know your neighbors. And people like didn't trick or treat because the houses were too far apart and they didn't know their neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> That's how, like, the kind of area I lived in. And it was very much a bedroom community, you know, like a commuter suburb because everyone who lived there worked in D.C. and then drove 45, 50 minutes home every day and then 45, 50 minutes home if the traffic was good. And as a result, I didn't know anyone around me. There were no like neighborhood kids. And I spent a lot of time alone. And I think that's not unique to artists, you know, kids who kind of have a natural inclination to being introverted and then they're given an opportunity to be alone a lot. It would have been weirder to me if I didn't learn to draw and didn't develop an interest in comics, <laughs> if, you know, under those circumstances. And I was drawing before I was reading comics proper, if we're going to define that as, you know, floppies you buy in a shop. And uh, I kept drawing after I fell out of comics. And my crowd wasn't even like an art crowd because my friends couldn't draw. <laughs> God, now in retrospect, this is weird. It I seems like, pretty reasonable at the same time. Like, we yeah. all take kind of a winding path to get to where we are. Like, I was an art student, and then I realized I could write, and I quit drawing. Which, in <laughs> hindsight, was the stupidest decision I've made my whole life, you know. I hear that a lot from people. My husband uh, used to say that to me. It's like, yeah, one day I just decided I'm never going to be good at this, and I stopped, and I regret that decision to this day. Because it's backwards, you know? I mean, you do something, and you practice, and then you get better. You're not, you know, better from the start. (laughs) Yeah, actually, this makes me think of, um, this will tell you about the quality of the relationship I had with my mother growing up. My favorite story ever, where... uh, It became obvious to my parents I was developing an interest in art when the plan was for me to be a doctor. That was the plan, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, one day I was sitting at the kitchen table and I was drawn away. And I was maybe like 16, 17. And my mother came and stood behind me and watched me for maybe a minute. And I didn't say anything to her and she didn't say anything to me. And I was just drawn away. And then she just goes, you're not that good. (laughs) And then turns and leaves. And I can understand if someone had, like, a good relationship with their mom, that would be devastating. And I'm sure she meant it to be very discouraging. But our relationship was so poor that at that time I thought to myself, and this is sort of a very typical 16-year-old thought, well, of course it's not good. I'm 16. Everyone knows you're not really good until you're 21. (laughs) So I just figured I had to keep practicing until I was 21, because then I'd be really good. That's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I also thought that, you know, uh, working in comics, no matter what, like small press comics too, was going in and like punching a time clock like you were in the Flintstones, and like working 9 to 5 on comics, and then coming home and punching another time clock. And I think a lot of that was influenced by uh, a trip to Disney World that I took with my family 
and I think it was Disney World. I'm pretty sure it was Disney World, where they would give you tours of like the animation offices. Like, apparently, there was this time when like the animators were all in a space with one-way mirrors facing towards them, so people could walk by and watch them work. And wow. we were walk on, yeah, walking by and seeing all these animator cubicles. And so that kind of conflated in my mind with, oh, okay. So you like, oh, you you punch in, you come in, and you draw. And, punch out and I figured comics must be a lot like animation yeah I assumed a similar thing about uh, Marvel comics back in the day because of the bullpen bulletins Yeah, like it made it sound like they would just hang out all day drawing comics which I now know to be totally untrue (laughs) (laughs) like you just have like weird ideas when you don't know any better yeah Yeah. Uh, what about Uh, nowadays do you have like a circle of cartoonists or uh, comics people you're close with Yes, I do, and it's kind of goofy because I went from I, I totally want to talk about college for just a second, and then yeah. I'll then I'll get to that. The college I went to was a college my dad really wanted me to go to. I didn't go to an art focused college, and I did not meet many people I had much in common with there. But it was in Atlanta, Georgia, and there was a neighborhood called Little Five Points in Atlanta, mm. and there was a store in. Uh, little five points called Criminal Records, which is very oh, yeah. misleading because while while it did sell records, it also sold comics, and that was like the only interesting comic store that I knew of. And it was like a thirty-five, forty-minute trip from my campus. And I remember like the one memory that stands out like searingly bright from my years in college is going to criminal records every weekend and just looking at the comics by myself because I could not convince anyone to come with me. And that is where I bought Monica's story, which was that James James Kolchaka comic about Mm -hmm. Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton. And that actually served as a very interesting tool to like sort of show people what I was reading because they heard I was going to the comic shop on weekend. They're all like, you like comics? I'm like, yeah. Two comics went over really well in the dorm. Bone and Monica's story. <laughs> That's quite a mix. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, I just hold up like, this is about, this is a comic about Monica Lewinsky and it was like someone had opened a window. They had no idea comics like this exist. They're like, are you serious? I'm like, yeah. It's based on her deposition. You should read it. Okay! And they liked Monica's story a lot, and they liked Bone a lot. So you almost tricked them into getting into comics. Oh, yeah, almost. Almost. (laughs) You just borrowed Bone and uh, Monica's story from me a lot. Yeah. But, yeah, um, nowadays, I'd say 95% of my socialization is weird introvert socialization. It's Skype-based. There's a group of, it varies, like maybe a smallest group, three or four. It gets up to like six or seven, maybe eight people in a Mm -hmm. Skype call. And we just start going at maybe 8 p.m. And we can go as late as 4 (laughs) a.m. Wow. We call it Midnight Dracula Club. And if you can kind of imagine, it is a virtual studio where everyone is just working on their comics and talking. And... That is about 95% of my socialization. Wow, <laughs> that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's perfect for introverts because you can just sort of sign off without saying anything. Cause, like, I'm done. 
you could talk to people in your pajamas. You can just get up and go to the bathroom and come back. And you don't have to, like, worry about looking okay. You don't have to worry, did I do my hair? You don't have to worry, oh, crap, I don't have anything to talk about. Because there are eight people in the conversation at once. So you can you can go radio silent for, like, an hour when you need to concentrate on something. Or even mute the call and then come back and be like, oh, or tell people, you know, I'm going to mute because I need to script and then I'll be back. Yeah. 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 So we do that, I'd say... I'm not in every single one every single night, but I'd say it happens five or six nights a week. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is, I, I suspect it's the, so most of the socialization for a lot of people in there. <laughs> They're all cartoonists or an, or animators or amateur artists of some stripe. So, How is that on productivity? Like, do you still get stuff done? Oh, we totally get stuff done, although we have to be careful about it because we kind of have... A propensity for posting links, and if you start posting and clicking links in the Skype, then your productivity is shot for the evening. It's because Wikipedia is the devil, basically. Oh, it's not even Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) It's like YouTube, it's Tumblr, it's stuff like that. Yeah. Well, awesome. Uh, Thanks for talking with me. Oh, cool. No problem. Happy to do it.